We're in the book of Isaiah, and I hope you have appreciated in our study how Isaiah is trying to picture a beautiful, saving, delivering, helping God. That God has come and He loves His people despite their sins, despite their problems. He has promised that He would forgive their sins, that He wants to care for them, save them, help them. He's going to send a servant. Chapter 42 is described. A servant's going to arise that God will send who's going to come and is going to save them. And in the midst of chapter 43, Isaiah has been prophesying the words of God. And God has said, I am the only God. There is no other God but me. There never will be another God. Yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. And through the fire and through the flames and through the flood, I will be with you has been the message of chapter 43. And really, I think then we pick up in in the right spot. Verse 22 is where we're going to pick up as now God wants his people to understand the condition that they are in and understand what God is going to do about that. Isaiah 43 verse 22, that's page 604 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 43 verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. That will be our text for this evening. Notice that then Isaiah says, here is what God has accomplished. Here is what God has done. I am saving you. I am helping you. And notice the response of the people after God in chapter 43 has described all the good and the help that he's trying to accomplish them. Verse 22, God says, but you didn't call on me. I said I would be your helper. I said I would be there for you through the floods and through the fire. I would be with you and carry you and help you. But you didn't call on me. In fact, notice what it says that they've done in verse 22. He says, you have been weary of me. 
Rather than seeing God as their helper, rather than seeing God as a savior and deliverer and helper, they are weary of God, which presents just a a fantastic idea. Here is God saying, I'm your helper. I'll be there for you. And people are saying, you know what? You're really wearing me out with that. You know, I wish you'd knock that helping me out business off. I don't want you, God. That's a weariness to me. Stop being there in my life. Stop being there trying to help. Stop being the one and only God who saves and delivers and cares for His people. You're a weariness to me. We're exhausted by you. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet that's the picture that Isaiah portrays as a people who God is offering Himself to help, to save, to protect. And the people are saying, you know, we're exhausted by that. That, that, that we're just really worn out by that. And having to give these sacrifices, verse 23, that God says, you haven't honored me with your sacrifices. You haven't brought me your burnt offerings. And God says in verse 23, have I really been a burden to you? Am I making life that difficult? Here I am, the only God. There is none other but me. I, have, I will save. I will help. I will protect. I will deliver. Am I really being such a burden to you to give you the offer of the powerful Almighty God to be there in your life and help. Is that really a big burden? That's what the people are saying basically to God. You're a weariness to us. We are not interested. We do not want that. And then notice how God presses that even further in verse 24. He says, if anybody is burdened around here, it's not you. You think you're wearied and burdened. I'm here helping you. He says, you've burdened me with all of your sins. If there's anybody carrying a load around here, it's me is what God says in verse 24. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquity. So here is the picture. You think it's a weariness to serve God. God is worn out by your sins. Your sin is the burden. And so notice how God tries to reverse the tables, how often people look at how what God is trying to offer, how God is trying to bless and save, protect, deliver. And people look at the offer of God and look at the idea of honoring God and worshiping God as a weariness and a burden. We know those words perhaps more memorably from the prophet Malachi who would say the very same words after the people come back out of exile, they return to the exact same way of thinking. What a weariness it is to worship the Lord. What a burden it is to honor God. And here they are doing it before the exile and seeing that they don't want to worship. They don't want to honor. They do not want God in their lives. And what is, I think, what is so staggering about why this becomes the gospel message and why this becomes a beautiful picture of the love of God is how God keeps describing what He's going to do about that. That God is relentless. That God is not pleased to say, okay, you don't want me around. I'll leave you to your devices. Fine. I won't ever talk to you again. I won't ever do anything for you again. I'll just leave you completely alone and you go off on your merry way. That God wants to change people's hearts and wants to bring them to Him. That God is in the business of drawing people to Himself. 
And that's what makes our God so amazing. What, and what makes God different than pagan idols and false gods is all of those pagan gods and false gods are all about the worshiper trying to get God's attention. You know, uh, if you cut yourself enough, if you throw the, the virgin in the volcano, if you offer a certain sacrifice, if we could just get God to pay attention, either if it was a Baal or an Asherah or whatever it was, they would try to get the gods to do something for them. And here is God with a bunch of people who say, you're a burden, you're a weariness to us. And God says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do about that. Verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In verse 24, he says, you know what you've offered me? Rather than offering me honor and worship that I deserve, rather than bringing to me the things that I ought to receive because I am God and there is none like me and there is none beside me, which is what chapter 43 earlier described. God says, I'm the only one and what you've brought me is the burden of your sin. And he says, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deal with those sins. God says, I'm going to forgive them. But did you notice in verse 25 why he said he'd do that? It has been a concept that has really arrested my attention really the past couple of years. And I'm sure you've seen in my studies and in my teaching over and over again, you see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God saying, I'm doing this for my own sake. I'm doing it for my own glory. I'm doing it because of who I am, because I am good and gracious and loving and merciful. We do not deserve it is always the point that's being made by that. It is not that we have something to offer God that is causing God to move and say, well, because you're so good, I'm going to do this for you. Over and over again, especially in Isaiah, it's presented, you are wicked and awful, and I'm going to do something so that you can be saved from your wickedness. He's already mentioned it before in chapter 42 about a servant. A prophecy that he'd already made way on earlier what we saw in Isaiah, like in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 9, about a new king with a new kingdom who's going to come. And he's going to describe these promises here again. And so he brings forth this idea and says, number one, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you for my own sake. And then to go even further and say, I'm not even going to remember those sins anymore. And that is a staggering promise. And it's a promise that you see used many times in the Scriptures. That we serve a God who says, I won't remember your sins when you come to Me. No matter how great those sins are, no matter how vast those sins are, we serve a God who says, I won't remember those anymore. I will blot out, I will wipe away those sins, and they will no longer be before me. And verse 27 and 28, I think, drive that thought process home. There should be judgment. 
Verse 27, Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against Me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. And so here is God saying, You deserve the consequences for your sins. And you are going to deal with the consequences for our sins. And we're not negated from that. When we break God's law, there are consequences that come to us. And Israel is going to suffer those consequences as well. Isaiah has already promised to Babylon you will go in chapter 39. You are going to go off into Babylonian captivity. You will be taken off the land because of your sins. But then notice what God does with that. He doesn't leave it there. Horrible chapter break. Notice He tells us in in chapter 44 verse 1, But I want you to hear. Listen up and pay attention, He says. Verse 2, Who formed you from the womb and will help you. You need to deal with the consequences of your sin, but I'm not going to leave you in that condition. I'm going to help you. So he says in the middle of verse 2, don't fear. You don't have any reason to fear. And here's why. Verse 3, here's the explanation. Because I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and your blessing, my blessing upon your descendants. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something amazing. It is going to cause a massive reversal. A complete renewal is going to occur. And I hope you will keep that meaning in your mind when you see God talking about, well, I'm going to make it rain or pour out water or pour out streams on dry ground, is you get this imagery of refreshing. Even though we're not really in that kind of society, we experience that a little bit of that here in South Florida, where it gets oppressively hot. And you're glad when the rain comes and the temperature drops down and you go, oh, gives us a break. Well, imagine in that time, in that society, in that location over there in the Middle East, in the dry, oppressive heat, to have rain fall and to have the rain come down is an imagery of there is refreshing, there is renewal, there is restoration. And that's why God uses that imagery, particularly in the prophets. And so here is God saying, I'm going to do something that's going to cause a reversal of your condition. You're like dry, parched ground because of your sin. But there's going to be a reversal that's going to happen. I'm going to pour out streams of water. He uses the imagery even further in verse 3. He says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. This is the second time that Isaiah has used this idea. Back in chapter 32, he said similarly, I'm going to pour out my spirit and gave a great picture of the uh, deserts turning into fruitful fields and great forests, this picture of restoration there. The same thing is happening here and you can see it even in the Hebrew parallelism that that exists right here. You'll notice it. uh, We'll note that those two lines. You have your offspring... And then you have your descendants. Same thing, right? Those things apparently are saying the exact same thing. Well, notice the front end of that. That 
my spirit and my blessing are the exact same things as well. And we've noted that in Isaiah that we have seen when God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit, there's nothing miraculous that's being depicted here. There's not some kind of, okay, now there's going to be visions or tongues or any kind of miraculous thing like that. That's not what Isaiah is looking at. When he speaks of the pouring out of the Spirit, he is talking about God is going to bless His people in such a way that there is going to be a radical reversal. And it's going to cause the renewal of His people. There's going to be a radical transformation so that His people are now able to flow flourish before him. In fact, you notice that's the very picture that's given in verse 4. Notice what's going to happen. He says, "They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams." So here is this beautiful picture of I'm going to make you like trees among the grass. So this is very much a a, a Psalm 1 imagery. I'm going to plant you like a tree. And this is a great picture of hope as well. Here are people who are crushed by their sins, who are devastated because of their iniquities. And here's what God says. I'm going to wipe out your sins. I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I'm going to pour out my blessings upon you so that you will experience a renewal and radical restoration in your life. So now that you will be planted like trees among the grass, you're going to be planted as if a tree by a stream of water. I'm going to be there for your life and I'm going to strengthen you and cause you to experience these things. And then notice the picture goes even further, not only in verse 4 and talking about the results of this pouring out, saying you're going to be like these trees flowing by the stream and this renewal is going to happen. Verse 5 is just staggering. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Now, go back a minute. What were the people saying back in verse 22 of chapter 43? You're wearing us out. You're a burden. We're wearied and they won't call on the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to do something so that now my people will identify themselves with the Lord and say, I belong to Him. There's going to be a group of people, God says, and they're not going to say that they're wearied by me. They're not going to say that they're burdened by me. They're going to call out to me. In fact, they're going to now be identified with me. And they're going to call themselves by my name and say that they belong to Him. And then notice it one step further. In verse 5, he says, And another will call on the name of Jacob. And then at the end of verse 5, name himself by the name of Israel. Not only are these people going to call on the Lord and identify themselves with God and say, we belong to Him, they're also going to say, we belong to Israel. We belong to God's community of people. We will identify ourselves with them and say, we belong to them as well. This is a staggering prophecy that Isaiah gives. 
that he says, I'm going to take people that, yes, you don't care and you think God is a weariness, but I'm going to accomplish something so amazing that it will change your heart so that you will want to call, be called by his name and you will want to associate with his people. And there will be a restoration, a renewal that occurs spiritually in the life of that individual. What we are seeing then being described by Isaiah, I submit to you, is what Christians are supposed to be. This is a picture that Isaiah is prophesying of when Christ comes. He is going to come. He is going to bless the world through his death and through his resurrection. When he ascends to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit. If we see that in Acts 2, that Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And the picture that Isaiah depicts now is God's new people, those who belong to him, who belong to the Lord and belong to his company of saved people. They are not going to sound like the people in chapter 43, verses 22, 23, and 24. They're going to sound like the people in chapter 44, verses 4 and 5. There's going to be a new group of people, or to say it another way, notorious sinners are going to become notorious believers. God is going to accomplish something so amazing through Christ that it will cause people to want to belong to Him. And the picture then is that God's grace is great enough to break into this world and to deal with our sins, that our sins are not too much for God, and that God does not walk away from our wretched, sinful condition. He says, I'm not going to remember those sins anymore. Instead, I'm going to renew your life so that you can belong to the Lord and that you can belong to His group of safe people. And then, if that were not enough, that God is picturing here in verse 5, that His grace is strong enough to change our desires and to change our thirst. Notice He doesn't just come in and say, and now I'm going to try one more time. You know, you all are a bunch of lazy, lousy people here in Isaiah, and I'll try one more time. He says, what He's going to do is supposed to be so transforming that people who didn't desire God will now desire Him. That people who did not appreciate God before will now appreciate Him because of what He's done. That God's grace is great enough to no longer see the Lord as a weariness and as a burden, but to see God as a joy and see worshiping Him as an honor. This becomes... I think a, an important answer in talking about how do we move away from the world and toward God? How do those desires change? How do we stop going toward sin and start going toward God? And what Isaiah is picturing is there is a focus on Christ and what was accomplished through Him. That there is the ability for God to say to you that though you have only brought the weight and burden of sin, I will wipe out those sins 
and I will not remember them anymore. And I will plant you like a tree by the rivers, protecting you, watching over you in relationship with you so that you can be my child and I will belong to you and you to me. And that offer would cause people to stop going their selfish ways and start seeking the Lord. That's what Isaiah is describing. That Isaiah is picturing a radical change. Please notice though, that the grace of God doesn't mean that these people have their sins overlooked and keep on sinning. They're supposed to be a transformation. That's what this whole section is. It's really the whole message of these chapters is a renewal would occur and reformation would happen in the lives of the people. And that is the idea of the pouring out of the Spirit. That blessing would come, the offer of the kingdom, the offer of salvation, the offer of being joined back to God though we were separated from our sins and undeserving of such an offer that that would be enough to transform people to want to seek after Him. That becomes then the amazing picture of how God is able to take people who are broken and parched by sin and now become fruitful in His service. Let me bring these together in this sense. Number one, God takes the burden of our sins and overwhelms them with grace. When you see how God puts those two statements together, you say that you're wearied by me, that I'm a burden to you. And on the basis of what is really God's declaration? How can you say I'm a weariness? And then turn right around and say, but I'll wipe out your sins. And I won't remember those sins anymore. It shows that whatever our sins are, that God can overwhelm them with His grace. And what that means even further then is you don't have to be a good person to come to Christ. Because here's the secret. We've seen this in Romans. Nobody's good. There is none righteous. Not one. And yet so often we can approach God and think, well... Uh, I'm not good enough. I, I can't do that. And that's the whole point. Is that no, you cannot. You need a Savior. You need somebody to deal with your sins. That you cannot come to the Lord in your own righteousness. But you come to the Lord in your sinfulness. And God promises that He will wipe away those sins not on the basis of our righteousness, but on his righteousness. That's what you have to love about verse 25. I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. God does this of his own will. And I think that leads us to a critical question. And what I want to explore for our last couple of minutes. So which is our perspective? Notice that Isaiah depicts two groups of people. One group says... God's a burden. It's a weariness. It's just hard to do. Such work. So overbearing. All the demands of God. All the things that He asks of us. All the things that He requires of us. And notice that the other group says, 
I want to be identified with him. That I want to be named after him and I want to belong to his people. And I want to challenge something to you tonight. If you feel the first picture, that God is a burden, it's work, it's a weariness, I'm going to challenge you and say, you haven't experienced God. I'm going to challenge you and say, you haven't experienced God. You have experienced perhaps ritual, duty, religion, You've experienced something, but you haven't come to know God. You haven't come to know who He is. You haven't truly experienced the Lord. Because Isaiah says, when you see what God has done, and when you come to experience the grace that stands there, we will want to be owned by the Lord, and we will no longer see Him as a weariness or a burden any longer, that we will identify ourselves with Him and desire to make radical changes in our lives, and that we will not look at His laws any longer longer as some kind of burden. I always would read David who would say, oh, how I love your law. And I would think, are you kidding me? It's a bunch of rules and laws. That's not very enjoyable. David, how can you say that is sweeter than honey? Because he'd experienced something that I hadn't experienced yet. I'd experienced rules and ritual and duty and responsibility and all of those things, but I hadn't experienced God. That's why. And that's what Isaiah is picturing here. There's two groups of people. People who look at God and say, it's something that has to be done. It is a duty, a burden, a weight on our shoulders. And then there's another group of people who truly experience what God has to offer And they recognize that that's not the case at all. Let me ask for your own life, how different is your life now because you have experienced the grace of God? How has that changed your life? Because that should be a very long list of things. That becomes the motivator of what causes us to change our lives, to move us away from sinful living and toward God. How different is our life now? How has God changed our life now that Jesus is our master? I submit to you that's exactly what chapter 44 verse 4 is saying. God says, I'll change your life. I will change your life. And don't think this is the only place. We're going to get to Isaiah 55. He's going to make it even more explosive. And then we'll get to Isaiah 61. He's going to say it again in an even more explosive way. I have come to change your life if you will submit to me. If you will experience me and get to know me and let me be your God. It will change your life. But will we let God do that? Will we allow ourselves to experience what God has to offer? The picture is that the grace of God changes us every day so that we become people who are honoring God and desire to worship Him and seek Him with all of our heart day after day. That grace of God changes us. Otherwise, we have not experienced it. Let me end with Titus chapter 2, verse 11, because this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said... The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul, what is that supposed to do? God's grace has appeared, he says, 
Now the blessings of God have been poured out. Now Christ has come. Now there is forgiveness of sins. Here is the salvation for all people. What is that supposed to do? Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Does Paul picture a people who say this is a burden and a weariness? Notice how it ends. They're zealous for it. They want to change. They want to do the good works. They want to belong to God. They see this as verse 13 as waiting for the blessed hope. This is not an obligation. This is not a ritual. This is not a burden or a weight. Isaiah says, my people will stand up and say, I am the Lord's. And they love it. And they will belong to His people. Which are you? Has God a burden? Or is God your joy? You pull your song books out. or sing a song and I'm inviting you to come to Christ. And it is an invitation to come to a real relationship with Him. To come to know Him. To no longer look at the Lord as a bunch of, well, I have to stop this and I have to start this. That's looking at it the wrong direction. When you come to experience the grace of God, when you see the mountain of sins that stands before you and myself, and how God says, I will take away those sins. I will wipe them off the slate so that we can stand before our God clean. Not a single sin that we have committed would be on the list. I will remember those sins no longer. And how is the response of His people not a joy to serve the great living God? That's what He pictures and that's the offer to you. God wants you to come to Him with your heart. Come to Him and love Him. Because He's been so good to you and loves you and wants wants to save you from your sins. And we respond to that then by doing the things that He says. We respond to Him in good works. Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to start that relationship with the Lord. It's a glorious relationship. It doesn't get any better to know that before God, All your sins are washed away. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?